<laughs> I'm here with Merry Gentlemen, Rob and Noah, and this week we're spreading holiday cheer in the best way we know how, with an exchange of festive facts suitable for this most wonderful time of year. In our usual fashion, we'll share three Yuletide-inspired, for today's episode, facts, and wrap it all up with a bow and a pub-style trivia quiz. Ooh. So with that, take it away, Dasher, I mean, Rob. This week I learned that until Martin Luther came along, nobody gave Christmas presents. Because huh. everyone was just... Is that one of the theses? One of the, one of the demands? So this was really fun for me because I obviously love talking about Martin Luther's 95 theses and other points of church history. Okay. Um, so this, this was a deep dive. <laughs> well, this Everyone is going to be a big <laughs> podcast for arcade bits of church history because yes. that's... <laughs> Largely what I'm going to talk about. I'm looking forward to hearing your facts. I'm so excited. <laughs> but this has to do with Martin Luther, the 95 Theses, his later work, the entire Protestant Reformation, the veneration of saints in the Catholic Church, specifically St. Nicholas, and some really serious religious people uh, making a super serious decision, but at the same time, not wanting to not get presents. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Relatable. I completely relate to that because there was a time, you know, maybe I was like 12, 13, getting to that point where like, where I hadn't really like fully come out as not believing in Santa Claus, <laughs> but like, I, you know, I still wanted to, for the purposes of like my parents giving me gifts, have them believe. And I think my mom at some point confronted me saying like, your dad told me that you didn't believe in Santa anymore. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> nobody said anything about that. Yeah. I am Santa believer through and through. She's <laughs> like, mm, okay. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't you worry, don't you worry. And I was like, just tell me what to say, and I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, I guess the setting for, for this fact is, basically for a thousand years, there's a tradition that on the Feast of St. Nicholas, Christians would give each other presents uh, in honor of St. Nicholas. And the reason being that the, the story famously was that he dropped enough money to pay for the dowry of three women through their windows to save them from a life of prostitution. Why did having a dowry meant that they mean that they didn't have to be prostitutes? Yeah. So the situation they seem to have been in is in the, the city of Myra um, in ancient Greece. Or not ancient, sorry, in, in modern or whatever. Modern Turkey, ancient Greece. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there was a man with three daughters, but he had no money. And so he wouldn't have a wedding dowry. So to basically make ends meet, he would be forced to sell them into prostitution. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm not sure I follow that logic, but maybe well, old-timey. I mean, well, you're not an economics major. Well, the way, you know, the way that he used Rob's to work like, was I don't have time to teach you about economics, no. <laughs> it's pretty obvious that if you don't have enough money to make rent, you sell your daughters as prostitutes. I mean, come on. Not to really work myself into a corner here with our listeners. <laughs> Instead of putting them to work on the corner? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but but essentially what, what happened was the man had no, no income and... When, when they gave daughters away in the past, there was exchange for the dowry. And so that was what basically the family needed to survive. And so that was, that was those were the options that he had. We think, luckily, it didn't have to go this way. <laughs> because a kind stranger dropped a bag of money through the window that landed probably near, if not in their shoes. Oh. And so oh, there we go. such began the tradition. And so actually, the way it goes, there were three daughters, and they were different ages, and he would drop it through their window like on their birthday, that would be of marrying age, so that they could then be given to a man and wed in exchange for a dowry. And so on the third daughter, the man thought to seek and sneak around and see who it was, and he found Nicholas of Mira doing this through the window. Um, he is a really interesting character because his stories are 1,600 years old, the history around them is a little muddied. So uh, the best we know about them is that he was uh, he was a presbyter, which a priest of the old church, became a bishop, was arrested, was released. Um, many miracles have been attributed to him. Um, I want to give you just, this is his most famous miracle. It's a little bit of a story. Um, but basically, <clears throat> several men were walking back um, in the area in which he lived, and they were arrested. 
Um, they were pious men and they prayed to St. Nicholas, who is still alive at this point. So he's just Nicholas. Yeah. And they prayed to him to intercede to free them before they'd be put to death. They, they were in the court of Constantine, the emperor of Rome at the time. Constantine, a pious Christian himself, had a dream that night that Nicholas yelled at him and threatened him <laughs> to let the men go, as did their guard. So Constantine comes down in the morning and says, I had the weirdest dream. The guard goes, me too. <laughs> and they're like, crap, we have to let them go. So they let the three prisoners go. And then Constantine supposedly sends a letter to Nicholas of Mira, basically saying, please stop threatening me. <laughs> in my dreams. <laughs> in my in dreams. My dream. <laughs> so the emperor of Rome sends a letter to a random priest being like, all right already. Like, I'm good. You win. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like his prominent miracle. That he had these men freed when they prayed to him. Uh, he has he has tons of other stories, um, many of which, if not all of which, are really hard to kind of uh, prove or verify. Um, so you actually mentioned, Rob, uh, that he was, like, arrested and uh, released. And actually, not to be a, a downer, probably wasn't. Because mm. the story that I'm familiar with in which he is arrested and released is... Um, has to do with the Council of Nicaea. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. so basically the story goes that in, I think it was eighty three twenty five, the Emperor Constantine, same when you were talking about convene this Council of Nicaea, and the idea was to sort of like solidify and codify what exactly it was meant by the Trinity and what, you know, Christians were going to worship. And more than like 300 bishops from all over the world came uh, to debate the nature uh, of these theological questions. And there's a story that there was this guy uh, who was a bishop, Arius, from Egypt. And he was teaching that Jesus, the Son, was not equal to God the Father. And as Arius argued his point, Nicholas became more and more agitated until he got up, walked across the room, and slapped him right across (laughs) the face. What? (laughs) So... As the story goes, Nicholas was then basically defrocked, like taken his bishop rolled dre. I don't know. He, he was made, he no longer could be a bishop. Um, he was thrown in prison, and then according to the story, I think it was Mary and Jesus or uh, appeared to him and said, like basically, just you keep doing you. You're right. Um, keep on slapping heretics, and then they gave him back like the the bishop vestments or whatever, and then uh, also gave him the book of the Gospels. And then so when the guards came down the next morning, they saw him with all of his, like, bishop robes and stuff. And they were like, wow, something crazy is happening. It's like, no longer in chains. This guy must be legit, is probably what they said. Um, (laughs) Only thing is, it is heavily disputed as to whether he was actually at the Council of Nicaea and is not mentioned in most lists of the bishops that attended, compiled by different ancient and more recent sources. But it's not clear that he was even there at all, and it probably didn't happen. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, that's the thing. There's always a little asterisk next to all of these miracles. Basically. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, just another one of the miracles that's ascribed to him, I think, is really interesting. Um, And it has to do with, uh, so first of all, St. Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, pawnbrokers, students, children, and brewers. And the last two are associated with a really horrible story. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, so basically there's this medieval legend about one of his miracles that tells how during a famine, a butcher lured three little children to his home, killed them, and then planned to sell them off as cured ham. <laughs> so, and he put them in like a barrel full of brine and to, to pickle them. All right? <laughs> just, yeah. just so you know. So these children are dead, pickling in the brine. There's three of them. St. Nicholas comes by, like, the the butcher's trying to sell the ham to him, and he's like, something sketchy about you. I'm going to go down in your basement, check out what's happening down there in the ham area. And he immediately figures out that these are children and not hams. Um, Through DNA testing. And then he makes the sign of the cross over the barrel, and then the three children are resurrected. And so this story originally arose in the Middle Ages, and it was incredibly popular. It was depicted in stained glass windows, in illuminations in the margins of of texts, uh, frescoes, um, woodworking things, a lot of things that survived to this day. They tell the story from start to finish. But eventually, the story became so ubiquitous that works depicting it would just only show... Uh, St. Nicholas standing over the barrel with three children in it. So people started to assume that he was the patron saint of children, and then they assumed he was the patron saint of brewers because he was standing over a barrel. And that (laughs) is how he became, just by, like, people just thinking it was true eventually, (laughs) the Catholic Church acquiesced, and he became officially the patron saint of children and brewers. Wow. 
There you go. So I actually came across, I think, what might be the origin of that story, because it in early depictions, St. Nicholas was shown handing over three bags of coins. Right. And mm. those three bags of coins in some, I suppose, poor drawings looked like three heads. Oh. And oh. so there are stories that they, it looked like, on one side, there were three heads that he was, like, presiding over, and then on the next side, there were three girls. And so <laughs> this was the original thought that the children were beheaded, and then he resurrected them oh. back to life from, like, poor drawings of, like, the dowry bags. Interesting. And so that's kind of possibly the same story of, like, the where this came from. Wow, yeah. So basically, his entire life is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I just like that there's this sort of like across history game of telephone that happens with these legends where it's just yeah. someone who's a shitty artist <laughs> like draws a bag of money to look like a head and, and now he's the patron saint of pickled children. It's yeah. just how it goes. <laughs> um, he, yeah, he also, I suppose, uh, notably, he, he spoke about many heresies, but he also destroyed a lot of pagan artifacts and temples, um, much to the chagrin of historians and archaeologists everywhere. Right. Mm. Um, but they believe that he was responsible, and I'm not sure how and what power he did this, but I found an re- account that says he was responsible for the destruction of the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the really? seven wonders of the world. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, nice work, Santa Claus. <laughs> I like that, like, sort of Indiana Jones-style archaeologists are, like, trying to find some, like, ancient, undiscovered site that they only know about through some obscure text that's, like, mm. half falling apart, and they finally discover where it is, they get there, and then they, you know, get past the snakes and the giant boulder, and then they get there, and it's just a, it's just a rubble, and then, like, a sign that just says, like, Nicholas was here. <laughs> <laughs> they're just like, Santa! <laughs> So back to December 6th, the feast day of St. Nicholas, on which we no longer give presents. The Protestant Reformation started in 1517 with Martin Luther, the 95 Theses. They didn't address this particular issue. They actually only addressed people indulgences, Hmm. which are a fascinating topic. Uh, The idea of an indulgence being that uh, you can pay to have a soul removed from purgatory and expedited to heaven. Hmm. The amount of sins Mm -hmm. that they owed God could be kind of reduced. Um... As you might imagine, this is a a very lucrative and uh, somewhat corruptible process. And so theologians like Martin Luther did not like it. And that was what caused him to first kind of protest. At the time, he was still a papist. He believed in the Pope and his supremacy, but the Pope excommunicated him for writing these theses. And so that led Martin Luther to really start criticizing the church. And one of the things he went up against was um, the veneration of saints. And basically... um, in words that Luther didn't use, the idolization of saints, the way that we pray to specific saints for specific things, having patrons. Um, This is not the first time the Catholic Church faced this. Actually, the Greek Orthodox Church left previous to this for the same reason, for the iconoclast controversy, for the the iconization or making an icon or an idol of people. So Luther didn't want any uh, saints to be venerated the way that they were. And in fact, most Lutheran churches will not have saint anything. It'll be the Trinity, the Holy Family, like the, the real core of belief without later saints. Um, The problem was everyone gave each other presents on the Feast of St. Nicholas. And so in the early days of the Protestant Reformation, how could you give presents in December without St. Nicholas Day? (laughs) And so some clever Protestants started just switching up their traditions and giving presents on Christmas. And then a whole sort of market or industry that used to be St. Nicholas presents became Christmas presents, visiting for Christmas, the Christmas feast became much of a bigger deal, especially in the Protestant church. Uh, Until now, it's basically universal and synonymous, the conflation of the two holidays. Even St. Nicholas himself moved from his feast day to Christmas in the Catholic church. Um, And so it's just this really kind of amazing blending over time as one doctrine was overturned and a new doctrine was put in place. But the thing that people liked, the gift giving, had to get swept along with it. Um, and so it's a kind of messy trail getting from the, the Catholic feast day of St. Nicholas to modern Christmas. A weird thing about St. Nicholas being this big, jolly character, there are reports from his early life that he only ate twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays. Wow. And and yet he's like become this like larger-than-life big... He's always yeah. been fat. <laughs> yeah. But like he literally fasted five days a week. Another interesting thing about that is that there were some like forensic anthropologists who did like a study on the bones of his that we have. And one thing they found by radiocarbon dating is that unlike lots of the purported remains of various saints, these bones originally in the uh, St. Nicholas Church in Myra, but then later taken somewhere else, 
they actually are from a right about the right period in the fourth century. What's more is that the person who those bones belong to uh, would have been about 70, a little bit over 70 years old, and Nick, St. Nick died when he was 73. Um, and they also, uh, notably, because you just mentioned this, uh, belong to someone who was sort of a, of like thin stature. Oh. Yeah. But so the interesting story about his remains is that uh, in the sixth century, um, Nicholas's remains were moved to a sarcophagus in the recently, or the then recently constructed St. Nicholas's Church in Myra. And then in 1087, merchants from the Italian city of Bari essentially stole most of the major bones of the Nicholas's skeleton and brought them to their hometown, uh, Bari, uh, where they are now enshrined in the Basilica di San Nicola. Um, and his remains are said to exude a miraculous watery substance that appropriate for our theme is called myrrh. Really? Yeah. But oh, it's not... that's odd. It's a completely separate thing from actual myrrh. Yeah, yeah. Just myrrh is like basically a dried like, root that's yeah. ground or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a resin, and this is basically just seawater huh. that seeps through the marble walls, because actually the church is like... Oh, huh. Bari's a port city, and then the, the sarcophagus is actually below sea level on the harbor. Um, and so they think... I mean, reasonable people think that seawater seeps in through the rocks and then collects in there and then drains out. And once a year, on December 6th, the people there, uh, the like the priests there, will like collect it um, and then basically sell it in the gift shop. But also, it's supposed to have like miraculous supernatural properties. Um, but it's basically gross bone seawater. <laughs> cool. Um, I think they reclaimed the bones during one of the Crusades. Um, yeah. And when they brought it back to Italy, the the town of Bari really wanted it, but everyone thought it was going to Venice. Like it was like supposed to go to Venice, and Venice and Bari almost got into like a small like city war huh. over the bones of Saint Nicholas before it was like disp- the dispute was settled by the Pope. Thanks, Rob. Noah, what have you got for us? This week I learned in the 17th century. Christians made it illegal to say Merry Christmas. Ah, yeah. humbug. The war on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Started early. Exactly. By Christians. Yeah. So, what a twist. Yeah, so as you, as we all well know, um, every year our social media timelines and cable news networks are saturated with grouchy old people bemoaning the alleged war on Christmas waged by coastal elites or Hollywood liberals or whichever coffee cup they deem to have an anti-Christmas agenda. (laughs) And I have always dismissed these criticisms out of hand, but frankly, I have to admit here that I was wrong. I have found evidence of a time when there really was a war on Christmas. And who was waging that war? Christians were. Well, at least Puritans were, who by their account were probably the most Christian-y Christians out there. Um, Puritanism grew out of the belief that the Church of England had retained too many Catholic practices, and that it needed to be purified, hence the name. So, one of those practices was the celebration of Christmas, which they attacked as, quote, residual papist idolatry, complaining that it was a decadent and wasteful festival that, quote, gave liberty to carnal and sensual delights. There's the Americans. (laughs) (laughs) So nobody really paid too much attention in England until forces commanded by Puritan Oliver Cromwell won the English Civil War, deposed and executed the king, and was installed as a military dictator. Shortly thereafter, an act of parliament made celebrating Christmas illegal, and the Puritan government threatened to throw anyone caught caroling or saying Merry Christmas or attending services in prison. They were met with massive protests and eventually backed off the worst of their threats, and the anti-Christmas laws were repealed about 20 years later with the restoration of the monarchy. Meanwhile, over in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritans had a stronger hold on society. An early law book from the colony contains the passage, quote, by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries, to the great dishonor of God, <laughs> it is ordered that whosoever shall be found observing Christmas, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, every person so offending shall pay of every such offense a fine of five shillings. Um, and there are three main reasons that the Puritans hated it so much. First, no holy days except for the Sabbath were sanctioned in the Bible. Um, second, the most egregious behaviors were exercised in its celebration. So they felt like, um, on Christmas, this, at least, you know, in the sort of 17th century version of Christmas, it was basically more like Mardi Gras than it was like the Christmas we know today. It was like this debaucherous festival, a lot like Carnival, where everybody's dancing, drinking, 
uh, not working, basically yeah. just going a little crazy. I mean, wassailing, which you hear about, was just people being, like, boisterously drunk and knocking on their neighbor's doors and being like, feed me or I'm going to stand here and yell at you. Yeah, yeah. So it was, like, <laughs> basically, bad. like, poor people would go to, like, the rich people's houses and basically demand that they be paid or get food. And mm-hmm. the it was sort of tolerated and even, like, accepted. It was this idea that the rich people had, like, this debt to pay to society because they were rich. And so on this one day, the sort of social order would invert and then they would have to sort of just give the poor people whatever they wanted. Um, and it was, it was sort of worked that way, except when the rich people were like, no, I don't want to give you all my food and money. And then basically the, whoever had the, you know, group of basically mob of poor people would just like harass them and cause chaos until they eventually gave them much more than they had originally asked for. And then they would go away. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the third thing was that the date of December 25th, they felt was ahistorical and moreover was thought to have been associated with pagan celebrations around that time. So they, they really were anti-pagan to, to the degree that like, you know how we have days of the week, like Monday, yeah. Tuesday. They didn't like that because those all kind of dated back to other gods. Yeah. Like and uh, so, a lot of like yeah, the Norse yeah. gods, for example, Thursday is mm-hmm. Thor's day. Mm-hmm. Wednesday or like Wednesday is actually like comes from Woden and which mm-hmm. is Odin. And it's Odin's oh, day. And then Friday is, is Freya, which was Odin's wife. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, Sunday is from the Teutonic name for the sun deity, Sontag. Or so, Sunday. And yeah, mo- so mo- Monday is. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, it held up better than most. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, Monday is also the moon's right. day. And yeah. Saturday, Saturn. Yeah, right? and mm-hmm. so they didn't use, they said the first day of the week, the second day of the week. They oh. just used numbers. Same thing for the months, because a lot of the months have... Um, uh, associations with either I mean except for I guess the last four but like mostly they're named after either rituals or gods or Romans and so they would say the first month so they would say the fifth day of the first month mm. would be January of our lord of our lord yeah <laughs> in the year of our, in the year of our lord, lord. <laughs> yeah and they were just completely anti these these names that in any way paid homage to um, a pagan individuals which is just fascinating and I, f- I forget exactly what December 25th was. It, it was a pagan holiday. Well, basically the idea was that there was a pre-existing uh, pagan holiday sort of celebrating the sort of transition from, you know, the darkest point of the year to when sort of the idea was like they were celebrating rebirth. It was a solstice. Um, day, yeah, so sort of associated with that, not necessarily directly, um, but there was like a huge festival that resembled that sort of, as I said before, like Mardi Gras-esque style um, festival. And it, another thing they did was to, they actually similarly to sort of the, the Christmas tradition that's grown up. The Roman god that they worshipped was that it was basically the sun god who was an infant deity. And it was all about sort of like the rebirth mm. aspect of it. So a lot of those themes made it easier for sort of the early Christians to co-opt um, that, that time of the year to replace the pagan pre-existing festival with their christmas festival and that made the transition to christianity much easier to kind of preserve that because they basically could say we can do all the same things but instead of praying to the sun baby we pray to (laughs) the the other baby (laughs) jewish baby (laughs) and it's great (laughs) and it is great and it works (laughs) just for branding that's all you needed and they the puritans hated all the holidays like you mentioned Uh, they had a problem with easter but easter was a kind of important catholic holiday and it always fell on a Sunday, so they always had to preach on Easter. Yeah. So there are reports that Puritan preachers didn't know what to say in their sermons. So they tried to just ignore the fact that it was Easter <laughs> on Easter. And and I found something written that the, the reason that they couldn't ignore Easter was because it determined when Election Day would fall. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. In fairness to them, the Puritans weren't like true purely anti-Christmas Grinches. They actually just basically hated all holidays. Um, there's a great quote from Puritan leaders who declared, they for whom all days are holy can have no holiday. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And and what happened, basically, as a result of this philosophy, the Puritan work calendar was one of the most work-heavy ever adopted by mankind, with approximately 300 working days compared to the roughly 240 to 260 we have today. And that was also common in ancient Rome. Um, And, in fact, the only days of rest in the New England calendar were the Sabbath, Election Day, Harvard Commencement Day, and periodic days of Thanksgiving and humiliation. Wow. (laughs) Humiliation? Yes, it's a quote. Periodic days of Thanksgiving and humiliation. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of sort of humiliating, ridiculous uh, elements of Puritan culture, so 
I gotta be real with you guys. I've been jonesing for a Puritan-related fact to happen <laughs> on our <laughs> podcast because I've been sitting on this fact that basically came from an article that I saw on Slate a while back, and I just have been looking for an opportunity to bring it up because it's just so preposterous. But basically, this is all about sort of historical names that were very popular among the Puritans that have thankfully fallen out of popularity. Um, so there are a few of these that I kind of were familiar with. You think of like Cotton and Increase Mother, which are just weird sounding names, but those are just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so as you said, uh, Puritans were a very pious and austere people, um, both back home in England and also in the New England colonies. Um, and those values are very much reflected in the ways that they named their children. So there are some nice names that occurred that actually have still stuck around to today. So like Felicity, Hope, Prudence, and Trinity, those are all kind of pleasant and, you know, nice qualities to aspire to. There are also some mean kind of fire and brimstone ones, <laughs> just to remind kids that they were all damned sinners at all times. Um, so just imagine being named humiliation, forsaken, wow. <laughs> abstinence, or lament. Just lament, get over here. Abstinence, chastity, <laughs> baker. You get <laughs> Baker? It seemed right. I don't know. <laughs> it, all, it flowed well. Um, but then I have to mention, so at the furthest end of the Puritan spectrum, you have some completely ridiculous names. So the ones that I'm about to give you were gathered from a compilation um, of names taken from parish records in southern England. Uh, so this was during the late 16th to early 17th centuries. So these were all real people who lived, and all of the names that I'm about to read are just hyphenated between all of the words that are in them. If Christ had not died for thee, thou hast been damned. That was the one name. That was one name. Wow. <laughs> Fear God. Fear God. <laughs> Job raked out of the ashes. <laughs> Fly fornication, which what? I was hoping was somehow the same of abstinence. Just no. that does just not to sound like abstinence. That now, sounds like it sounds like a Tinder profile. Line. That sounds like the names like a hippie family would give their children. <laughs> Could be so, free love, fly like, fornication, like fly fornication, sunflower baker. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, this one I actually really like. Experience. This is another one that makes, but like, I feel like in the Puritan style, that means like slutty. It's like the opposite of like chastity. Oh man, did you guys hear about experience in fly fornication? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the last one. the back of the small Puritan church house. (laughs) (laughs) So I I teach a lot of kids around New York City, and I, I teach science. And I had a bunch of kids come on the bus, and one kid's like, I'm science. And I was like, nice, man. He's like, no, I'm science. And I was like, what are you saying? And his teacher was like, his name is science. science. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. But it, was, um, it was not spelled as, as you might guess, but it, it was pronounced science. And then, wow. and then when you were trying to teach the kids, you're like, all right, kids, today we're going to do science and we're arrested. <laughs> Game over. All right. Thanks, Noah. Uh, So now we've arrived at my fact. So this week I learned that mistletoe, despite its reputation as a facilitator of holiday smooches, is far from romantic, given that it's actually a parasitic poisonous murder weapon named after bird shit. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So before researching this fact, the image of mistletoe that I carried in my mind was likely the same one that you do currently, as just this dainty, white-berried plant whose branches are usually tied with some sort of festive ribbon. That's white berries? Yeah. Oh, well, then that wasn't the image that I carried in my mind. <laughs> I think of it having red berries. Maybe that's so holly. That's holly, yeah. That's holly. That's, yeah, I mean, that's kind really of like the, the pointed leaves. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mistletoe I think, I think actually white. a lot of people don't know what mistletoe looks like anymore. Yeah. Because, like... I don't. So, right, so it is this dainty white-berried plant. And its branches are usually tied with some sort of festive ribbon and then strung over a doorway, alcove, or really any corner wherein two leads in a rom-com might accidentally find themselves having a revelatory conversation about their feelings for each other. Right? <laughs> That's the image we all have. And indeed, the amorous connotation of mistletoe is centuries old. It's thought to originate in ancient Celtic culture, as the Druids believed that infertility could be overcome by sacrificing two white bulls and climbing an oak tree to gather and make an elixir from mistletoe. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Um, And as a side note, our knowledge of this ritual actually comes from an account written by a notable unicorn expert and friend of the pod, Pliny the Elder. Pliny! (laughs) Pliny. (laughs) Pliny. 
Um, and I have to say, I feel like a lot of tangents that I come across in my research, across various facts even, um, somehow trace back to Pliny the Elder, yeah. somehow, eventually. Like, if Kevin Bacon can be reached through five degrees of social connection, I feel like Pliny's got to have the equivalent, but as five clicks through Wikipedia's random article link. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, the tradition of stealing a kiss under the mistletoe has its origins in a relatively more recent history, however, and is thought to have first caught on among English servants in the Victorian era. So the earliest recorded reference is actually by Washington Irving, better known as the author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, who describes the plant's significance as the mistletoe with its white berries, see, even he said they're white, hung up (laughs) to the imminent peril of all the pretty housemaids. Huh. <laughs> the practice That's rapey. <laughs> yeah, there well, so I will say I found a couple of passages about it and that was the least rapey of the ones that I found. <laughs> I was gonna say, wow. like I, my sort of like general picture of mistletoe is like is like you can make some untoward advance and then be like, "But there's mistletoe." Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, care to share a terrible experience? <laughs> <laughs> no. Sounds like you're like, "Yeah, yeah, it's horrible." <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering, Emily, because you seem like very negative about mistletoe. You literally just described it as really? a parasitic, poisonous murder weapon named after bird shit. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah, and we're getting to it. But okay, but four stars. <laughs> That's great. But four stars. I just I want to build up the reason why we think it's romantic, and then just very, you know, progressively tear it down. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> But this uh, this connotation of mistletoe is also described by other Victorian authors, so including Charles Dickens in his Pickwick Papers. Um, and actually, apparently, back then, there was also another sort of facet of this tradition that I hadn't heard about, wherein every time a kiss took place under the mistletoe, you were actually supposed to remove a berry. And then once huh. all the berries were depleted, it was inactivated of its terrible kiss-inducing powers. Interesting. <laughs> So I guess that, you know, disappeared at the time, but that used to be the part of the tradition. But, uh, well, I guess as we all know, the part of the tradition that is, that is at least carried on to today is that anyone, typically a woman, because, of course, who turns down a kiss under mistletoe is doomed to have bad luck. But, <laughs> as I'll mention further in a minute, uh, mistletoe's association with bad luck actually goes far deeper than that. And, um, at least in my mind, it's a big part of why it's way more sinister than its amorous associations would suggest. So, in reading through this, I quickly figured out that you don't really have to dig very deep uh, to uncover the more unromantic aspects of mistletoe. The word mistletoe itself actually comes from two words of an old English dialect, tan meaning twig, and missile meaning dung. So huh. mistletoe itself roughly translates to poop on a twig. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> this name presumably came from the speaker's observation that mistletoe appears to grow out of bird poop that lands on tree branches, which is consistent with its actual biology and life cycle. So mistletoe uh, is ascribed to various hemiparasitic plants, about 1,300 in fact, uh, of the family Santillaceae, which I thought was kind of funny because Santa, that's yeah. great. Um, better known as sandalwoods. Uh, so I mentioned the word hemiparasitic, uh, and hemiparasites are plants that derive all or part of their sustenance from growing on host plants, usually trees. And mistletoe, while it is capable of a little bit of photosynthesis, gets the bulk of its water and nutrients through their hastorium, which is a special type of root that literally grows under and into the bark of trees. Um, and if the parasitic... Like integrates into the xylem and the phloem. Yeah. Wow, you fancy. <laughs> you yeah, fancy with your plants. plant anatomy. <laughs> Um, but yeah, if the parasitic infestation is severe enough, it can actually suck the life out of trees wow. and just kill them completely. Um, so and, this, and okay. mistletoe is also the reason it's like a Christmas plant. It's an annual, like it, it grows year round, right? So when the yes. tree itself is in its winter mode. Yeah. And that's actually part of the uh, fertility connotation that it had among the druids and that it was one of the few plants that could survive during the, in the middle of winter. This is a blood sucking vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Oh. <laughs> Which, and I will say this behavior is also reflected in the scientific name of American mistletoe, uh, Forodendrum leucarpum, the genus of which uh, is the Greek for thief of the tree. Wow. Um, so as you mentioned, any Twilight fans who might be listening might disagree with this, but I personally don't feel any butterflies in my stomach at the prospect of vampiric shrubbery. <laughs> <laughs> That 
That's so weird because mistletoe only comes at Christmas, and there's so many crosses at Christmas. You think you wouldn't have a vampire <laughs> problem at all? And it's yes, frustrating. This stuff is evil. I'm telling you. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I don't think that most Christmas food is especially garlicky. It's, so it's it, true. Well, there's the real problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it's during one of the darkest times of the year. Not oh, a lot of God. sunlight, right? Oh, <laughs> wow. Of course it's not it's photosynthetic. It's a perfect storm. <laughs> um, but as I mentioned earlier, so the name mistletoe comes from their means of dispersal through bird poop. Um, and actually, if you've ever popped open a mistletoe berry, you might have noticed that they're incredibly sticky. Uh, mistletoe seeds are coated in this highly adhesive substance called visin, mm. which allows them to stick to tree bark once they're deposited there so that they can germinate and then claim their next victims. And I will but say... But only if they're invited in to the tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's where it falls apart. <laughs> it took us a while to get there, to be fair. <laughs> but also... I feel a responsibility to, to give this side note on mistletoe berries. If you do decide to mess with them and assess their ickiness for yourself, that's all well and good, but don't eat them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, although the American varietal has only been documented to cause gastrointestinal distress, which I think that's sufficient reason to not eat it, uh, the British variety is toxic enough to actually kill you. Wow. <laughs> so Jeez. don't do that. So while mistletoe's romantic reputation is derived from its significance to the ancient Druids, it actually is associated with stories of another ancient culture as well. And for those stories, we actually have mistletoe to thank for a completely different association that we have within Western culture. That of the number 13 with bad luck. Mm. Yeah. So the story at the center of that is actually from Norse mythology. And specifically, it's that of the death of Baldur, the son of Odin. So Baldur was one of Odin's favorite sons and was by all accounts a popular, good-looking, stand-up guy. But one day, he started having nightmares about his impending death. So a visit to the local prophetess confirmed that these nightmares were indeed prophetic, which spurred his mother, Frigg, <laughs> oops, Frigg, uh, to visit <laughs> every plant, animal, and generally entity in the universe to make, to make everything swear that it won't kill her son, thus hopefully preventing the prophecy from coming true. However, as she very foolishly reveals to Loki, of all people, she opted to omit mistletoe from her Please Don't Kill My Son tour because she <laughs> perceived it as too cute and harmless to pose an actual threat. A miscalculation she, as you might guess, would soon come to regret. So, See, Loki... Oh, yeah. My whole with this story is, like, if you listed everything from least cute to most cute, I don't think mistletoe <laughs> quite makes it to the most cute spot. Like, there's, yeah. there's like, puppies and otters and, I don't know, like... this. To the Vikings, there was, those were delicious meals. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Fair point. So, Loki, armed with this intel and a certain hemiparasitic member of the family Santelassiae, proceeded to crash a Valhalla dinner party to which 12 godly guests were invited, making him the unwelcome 13th oh. dinner guest. So his appearance might have gone unnoticed by other attendees, however, as they were amusing themselves by pelting Baldur with anything they could get their hands on, all of which bounced off of him since his mom made him invincible to almost everything in the universe. Um, so given this scene of chaos and rocks and flowers and probably gophers flying through the air, <laughs> Loki, sensing an opportunity for mayhem, transformed himself from his presumably Tom hiddleston form to that of an old woman and used his benevolent exterior to trick a blind god named Hodor into lobbing Hodor. some point of... Oh, man. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Anyways... Um, different Hodor, but uh, he basically tricked him into lobbing some sharpened mistletoe at Baldur as part of the aforementioned pelting him with things sport. Sharpened um, mistletoe? Yeah, a little mistletoe You're thinking spear. of Holly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sharp. Uh, we're back. <laughs> but, so, as you might now have guessed, uh, the mistletoe hits and kills Baldur. Womp. Thus fulfilling the prophecy and teaching the lessons that you shouldn't underestimate the danger of dinner party interlopers, kindly old ladies, and mistletoe. Because they can fuck you up. <laughs> so, to review, mistletoe, a.k.a. poop on a stick, can kill you or at the very least leave you with moderate to severe gastrointestinal distress. It shoots its roots into and sucks the life out of trees like some sort of leafy, dementor, alien hybrid of your nightmares. And... <laughs> through its use as a murder weapon in Norse mythology, has inspired a triskaidekaphobia that spans centuries and cultures. 
just something to consider next time you're about to share a Christmassy smooch. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. If you think mistletoe is bad, I have something that's worse. Ooh, bring it on. It's Mistletoe, the single by Justin Bieber. <laughs> so, unbeknownst to me, and most people, I think now, in 2011, Justin Bieber made an album called Under the Mistletoe. Oh, gross. The album single was Mistletoe. This is his second album. He went from Nobody to Hi, I'm Justin Bieber to Let Me Make a Christmas Album. Huh. And sure. I don't know how he amassed this lineup of people, but let me tell you who collaborated on Justin Bieber's 2011 Christmas album. He got Taylor Swift, Sean Kingston, the band Perry, <laughs> um, Mariah Carey reprising her All I keep... Want for Christmas Is You. I was going to say, you can't okay. keep Mariah Carey away from a Christmas album. <laughs> she <laughs> just sneaks into Jesus. it. <laughs> So, Rob, your tangent on terrible Christmas music uh, reminded me of something I stumbled upon on the website Quartz, actually. Um, and it's a Christmas carol that was written by a neural network. So this was posted Ooh. by uh, a research scientist in um, industry and machine learning uh, on her personal AI blog. And just to kind of give you a few lines that were produced, so this is an amalgamation of all sorts of Christmas carols distilled into uh, the essence of a Christmas carol, according to AI. So, uh, if you guys will entertain me uh, for a moment, I think it would be pretty cool if we, as a sort of modern-day rendering of uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas, uh, read through some choice lines from this uh, AI Christmas carol. All right, yeah, let's do it. Oh. Right? Dramatic reading. <laughs> okay. All right, so, Santa Baby, a Blitzen, and he was the sun and reindeer and earth, the savior of the chimney tonight. <laughs> The story of the chimney, see? Santa baby, and blood, and joyous, so world and joy and good. Will to see, Santa baby bore sweet Jesus Christ. Fa la 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 la. La 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 la. King of toys and hippopotamuses. Full of the light that stood at the dear son of Santa Claus. He was born in a wonderful Christmas tree. <laughs> and now, let's read the final stanza in unison. Run, run, Rudolph. Run, run, Rudolph. Run, run, Rudolph. The, the newborn, newborn king. king. <laughs> that was so terrifying at the end. Amen. <laughs> God bless us, everyone. All right, so given that this week we've opted to exchange holiday-themed trivia gifts so as to be in the spirit of the season, my quiz follows suit in that each question is about a holiday that occurs in December. However, as someone who was born in December and knows all too well the pain of having one's birthday overshadowed by that of a figure worshipped by roughly a third of the world's population, I speak, of course, of Santa Claus, I've chosen to acknowledge <laughs> some lesser-known, though still special, holidays that fall within the more mainstream holiday season. All right, so question one. What historical repeal, which occurred on December 5th, 1933, shares its date of celebration with bathtub party day? Appropriate, given that the word bathtub is part of a slang term associated with the illegal production of a substance prior to that repeal. So it's so the repeal the, of prohibition. Yep, 20, yep. 21st Amendment? Yeah, nice. perfect, exactly. Because there's a brewery, 21st Amendment brewery. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's what its name is oh, based yeah. on. Yeah, that's right. So, yep, you guys got it exactly right. The repeal of prohibition. Um, and the wordplay there was a uh, reference to bathtub gin. Question two. What treat, which we pay homage to on December 7th, was originally called Fairy Floss when it debuted at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair? Cotton candy? Cotton gotta be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cotton yeah. candy. There you go. Exactly. Fairy Floss. <laughs> <laughs> Fairy Floss, yes. Yeah. So that's National Cotton Candy Day, uh, and it's still called Candy Floss in the UK. Can I say that um, recently, this is total diversion, but recently I was sitting um, in a cafe, and I was just working on something, and I hear these two people walking by having this very animated conversation about how how long you should floss for, and one of them was like, but I floss for the entire minute. 
And I just don't see how it's possible that he could flash for all ten minutes. And then they, like, turn the corner and out of earshot. And I have no idea what they're talking about. But I'm really, really worried about my tooth care regimen. Is it... Wait, are you sure they weren't dancing? That flossing? <laughs> I flossed for the whole minute. <laughs> <laughs> and, my t- and my dental hygiene isn't any better. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> uh, let you guys, let's all floss right now. We're all very good at flossing. Oh, yeah. Should we take a, just a minute to do, like, a really good floss? dance that you guys just gonna have to take our word for it all right right now we're all flossing ready to go. go we're doing and it floss. that's how good we are anyway. <laughs> so question three now that we've had our dance break national flashlight day is celebrated on what day appropriate given that it can coincide with the phenomenon of polar night in the arctic circle we have to read the solstice 21st 22nd yeah Exactly, the 21st. Oh, like the 21st Amendment. Whoa! It's all interconnected. 21 theme. (laughs) (laughs) And you can drink when you're 21. Ah! (laughs) This makes sense. Uh, Yeah, well, that's exactly it. The winter solstice. Uh, Polar night is the term given to night that lasts over 24 hours. Um, So I'd imagine people who are undergoing that probably have a good reason to celebrate flashlights during that time. All right, so question four. December 12th was designated a holiday by an 1851 act of Congress to honor the first American ambassador to Mexico, who is now mostly remembered for introducing what, also known as Flor de Nochebuena, to the States. Um, like agave? Tequila. (laughs) That would be pretty great. But, uh, so I'll give you a hint, Nochebuena is, it does translate to good night, um, but it's more, it's applied to a holiday. Like a, a holiday during the holiday season, so in and December. so yeah, so it means Christmas Eve essentially. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's on the fifteenth. Oh, did he on the twelfth? Yes. The twelfth. Oh, the twelfth. Yeah. Okay. Did he bring us poinsettias? That is correct. Oh, wow. yeah, because so, it's, it's yeah. it also has a name that's like the some Christmas star or something. Well, just now you guys know that. Now we know, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so the ambassador himself was actually named Joel Roberts Poinsett which is mm. where the name poinsettia actually comes from. Mm. Uh, and he first encountered the plant during a trip to Mexico and then saved some clippings and brought them home. And now they're all over the place. Oh, wow. Good yeah, Very cool. Um, all right, so question five. Which organ, which features anatomical structures, including the bony labyrinth, ossicles, and stereocilia, is the subject of a December 8th holiday? In her ear. Yeah, but why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so this is the weirdest of the holidays that I encountered, but you were correct with the ear. So this question is based on um, a holiday that is called Take It in the Ear Day. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Which I have no idea what it's all about. And as far as I can tell, the internet doesn't either. Uh, the only consensus that I've seen is that it's been spotted on multiple joke calendars, but beyond that, its meaning is an enigma. So per HolidayInsights.com, which sounds like a credible source, Take It in the Ear Day is a bizarre day of unknown origin. Our research found absolutely no documentation about the origin of this day, and we've not uncovered any information about the meaning or purpose. Yet references to it abound on bizarre and fun calendars. And that's the most information that I've been able to find. Like, it's listed in a bunch of lists of strange holidays, but no one knows. Now, the most charitable interpretation of Take It in the Air Day that I can think of is it's a day where you're supposed to listen to people. Yeah. But the least charitable... (laughs) (laughs) It's a very different... (laughs) Question six. Um... Although they're more associated with a holiday that occurs a month earlier, whose arrival occurred on Forefather's Day, December 22nd? Oh, I guess that would be our the pilgrims on the Mayflower. Yep. Yeah. They actually arrived on the 21st, even though Forefather's Day. Oh, 21st! In the year 1620. If it was 1621, you guys would have lost your minds. So close. So close. Question seven. Whose birthday is the basis of a holiday celebrated on December 25th, for which celebrants exchange cards with phrases such as reasons greetings? <laughs> oh, um, wait, it's got to be... Okay, name your favorite like well, structuralist like, philosopher. I would say, like, maybe, like, Dawkins. Reason. Um, no, it's got to mm-hmm. be older, right? Okay, um, is, is it, who wrote, like, reason in the mind? It's like... Mm, 
Marks? No. Is it? A I really thought Dawkins was a good yes. So it's definitely it's someone who was around much before both of those people, folks. Okay, so you're saying it's not like a 18th oh. or 19th century philosopher. So it's more like Plato. Overshot. Sometime between Plato and. <laughs> And the other let's say Darwin is where we're going to draw the other boundary. It's not Darwin, is it? Because you said it was earlier Before than that. Before Darwin. Was it uh, Isaac Newton born on Christmas? Yes. Nice. Is that <laughs> oh, wow. Yep, he was born on Christmas. So the holiday is called Newtonmas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as I mentioned, they exchange cards with things like Reason's Greetings, as well as boxes of apples and, and <laughs> science-related items as gifts. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Is that why Fig Newtons are a thing? Is Fig a Christmas thing? Bring us so your Figgy bring some Figgy Newtons. So <laughs> bring us some Figgy Newtons. <laughs> Is Isaac Newton? He's a friend of the pod. He opened a window in, in so. Parliament. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> right. Yes. And we mentioned before that... Uh, Isaac Newton was a member of Parliament at, at actually two separate times for very short times, and his only ever recorded um, participation in Parliament was a motion to ask an usher to close the window because it was drafty. <laughs> All right. So last but not least, question eight. So Zamenhof Day, celebrated every year on December 15th, pays homage to an ophthalmologist who is better known as the author of Unua Libro, and also as the inventor of what? That eye chart with the E at the top. No, but you're on the right track with regards to letters. Oh. Unua Libro. The fact that he's an ophthalmologist is kind of unrelated to what he's best known for. Interesting. Okay. Zumanov's day? I'm not totally sure the pronunciation, but either Zamenhof or Zamenhof, or it's Z-A-M-E-N-H-O-F. Okay. Uh, he was Polish. And what was his uh, book again? Uh, Unua Libro. One book? Yeah. Right. So what he invented, the the an idea behind it was kind of sort of bringing something common to connect all cultures. Did he invent Esperanto? Yes. Oh, oh, nice. Yes. There we go. He was Polish? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, yes, exactly. He was the inventor of the Constructed International Auxiliary Language of Esperanto. Um, he also went by Dr. Esperanto uh, as its inventor. But in a way, that makes a lot of sense. Esperanto, in its own language, actually translates to one who hopes. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of cool. And that's why Unua sounds really weird, because it's one mm, book, it's written but in... it's not a language we right. know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nicely done. You guys you. got... Great. Almost every question. Good quiz. So there Good you go. quiz. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks so much for tuning in. And please remember to drop us a rating if you like what you hear. And check us out over on Instagram at Fax Machine Pod and Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast for bonus content and updates. We'll be taking a break over the holidays. So our next episode is going to drop on January 8th. Until then, happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you next time. Pod to the world. <laughs> oh, little pod of Bethlehem. Oh. Podcast, you merry gentlemen. We wish you a merry podcast. We wish you a merry podcast. Have yourself a merry little podcast. Yeah. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Do they know it's podcast? <laughs> <laughs>